Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Hold on. Now it went live. I pressed the button. Okay, we're live. What's up, everybody? Did you just choke on? Oh my god! <laughs> At least I wasn't muted. How's it going, everybody? My name's Indy. That gentleman next to me is Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, eating gummies from uh, Gamescom. And welcome to Indie Game Business. And we've got Joshua Garrity. He's the head game scout at Secret Mode. And the topic of today's podcast is what publishers are looking for. So welcome, Joshua. Hello, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, it, it wasn't that long. I know it was too. It was like six months ago or so. That six you were months. Here. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. Right. So yeah. let's refresh everybody's memory. Okay. Tell us how you got into the industry and walk us through your career. Yeah. So uh, around about 2015, a friend of mine said, "Hey, Josh, do you want a job in the games industry?" Um, and that gig was at, uh, at the time was called Sold Out, uh, now called Fireshine. Um, I started out at Sold Out doing more kind of product marketing manager style stuff. Um, I helped do the box release of games like Ukulele and um, Prison Architect on, on consoles. Um, and then more and more, I was put in a biz dev role. Um, so my title was acquisition manager, um, which was a, it, acquisition manager. It was a game scout, like what we, what we think of as a game scout now. Um, and, um, I spent six years, um, at sold out slash fireshine, um, and signed a great many titles, um, such as core keeper and shadows of doubt, um, and there are still games that uh, I signed uh, there that have yet to come out, um, which is a surreal, <laughs> surreal feeling. Um, but yeah, like uh, that's that's the place where I think, you know, everyone has their trial by fire. I think sold out Fireshine was my trial by fire. It's the place where I made all the mistakes that I'm going to, you know, I, I needed to make to be good at what I do. Um, but also um, a place where I have a, a ton of, you know, a ton of things that I'm proud of. Um, I then moved over to Team 17 um, as uh, the uh, as a senior game scout, so part of the game scouting team, where I signed games such as uh, Batora and Earthless from Blackbird uh, Interactive. Um, and then I got offered the head game scout position at uh, Secret Mode um, about a year and a bit ago. Uh, it's probably more than that, but time who who uh, who keeps track anymore? 
Um, but um, yeah, like uh, I've I've been at secret mode ever since. So, what does a game scout do? A game scout uh, the the best best way. So there's biz dev and and there's game scouting. A game scout is essentially a a biz dev person, but I think someone who's much more kind of intimately familiar with um, developers and and their kind of wants and needs. Um, so you, I, I'm like a net, right? I, I get cast out at events um, such <laughs> as Gamescom, such as First Playable, and I I catch project pitches and then bring them back to the business. And essentially the ones that I like, the ones that I think are most suitable, fit kind of the the pillars that we want to hit, um, are in the areas we want to expand into. I present those to the rest of the business and then take them through, guide them through um, uh, a green light process uh, along with, uh, so at, at Secret Mode, we have uh, a green light manager, uh, Leah Shaw. Um, uh, they are responsible for kind of uh, uh, taking the game through the latter stages of the green light process um, and then uh, over the finish line to signing. So what I love about the game, Scott, and it's good that you like layered it out differently than, than BizDev because I've been both sides of the coin as well. And yeah. now I'm at the point of my career where I have found people that are better than me at it. And I've hired them as our game scouts and let them go do the fun stuff. But I will say for all of us in the industry who, you know, people look at us and go, oh, all you do is play games all day. Well, I mean, that's not wrong if you're a scout, but there is more to it than than all of that. Yeah, I I mean, the the, the truth is, like, I would say ninety percent of my job is saying no, but saying no in a way that uh, people aren't going to be annoyed or angry at me. Um, like constructing good, thorough, useful feedback. Um, no one's no one's going to be happy at the end of getting a rejection, right? Like that's not that's not possible. But you can at least leave someone feeling like they got closure, like they got they were fulfilled by the interaction. Um, and I'm not saying that like I have like a perfect track record in that regard. Uh, I don't think any game scout does. Um, but I feel I try and endeavor to to make sure that. Um, anyone who's pitched to us and has gotten a certain way through the process um, understands exactly why it ended up being a no. And uh, even if, so sometimes it's a no simply because it's just not a fit for us right now. And I want to make that clear when I reject something. Like there is a difference between it's a no for us, but it might be a yes for those people over there uh, because the answer to that may not be to kind of radically change what you're pitching. It's just we're the wrong person to pitch to versus the situation where there is a fundamental kind of vocal flaw with the, with the title and it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed before you put it anywhere else. I, I think it's important to, to, to make a clear distinction between those, those two things. Um, yeah. And, and also like, um, 
game scouts, biz dev people, we're not... Um, I feel like we're very knowledgeable about games culture um, and, and the games industry culture. Um, but we're not experts in programming. We're not experts in production or some things like that. We do end up being kind of like guides for projects through the different departments uh, within the publishers that we work at. So we'll take a game to the production team and go, What's your read on this? Any red flags that I can't see or any positives that wouldn't immediately, you know, occur to me? Uh, same with marketing, same with sales and finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're very much like forest, not the trees types, I would say. And, and how often, and we were joking about this like right before we went live, how often does something come through and, and you like it and it goes to green light and the rest of the green light committee is like, and we don't have the timing we don't have this and you're like but i like it and we really need to do this do they do they listen um i, I yes yes um i i i think i in my younger years i was people people who work with me are gonna laugh because they're gonna they're gonna call bs on this um I think in my younger years, I was much more like bullish about that kind of thing. Um, like, um, especially towards the end of sold out, um, towards my end, end of, uh, of my time at sold out, I was like, I really like this. And if we don't sign it, I think you're all ridiculous. Um, um, whereas now I'm kind of much more conscious of like, yeah, it'd be bad if we sign that because like we've got we've got a game coming out in that window already and it's just gonna cause a train train crash so i i am i am but like it's always begrudging like like there's always like a secret part of me that's like i want to sign it anyway um yeah i mean any any look let's be honest like any game that gets a certain way through the process there is a degree of emotional attachment and i think any like Game Scout who denies that is lying to themselves. Like you do kind of invest a piece of yourself in the in the games that get to a certain point. Um, but I do think like part of being a professional is accepting <laughs> when you've when you've uh, uh I try to be professional, believe it or not, Jay. Um uh is accepting defeat when it, it you, you know you're not onto a winner. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so you're not like me and, and writing little post-it notes saying, check back in six months on this game because I fucking told you so. <laughs> like... Oh, I have. Oh, don't get me wrong. I have an I told you so list. <laughs> I, I absolutely do have an I told you so list. Um, oh. uh, there's, there are a few games that I'm, I'm anticipating the release of um, and, and uh, can't wait to send that email. Um, but yeah, in, in the, in the green light process, like I, I know when I'm, I know when I, it's a long walk for a short drink, if you know what I mean? Like I, I I'm not, I'm not going to kill myself in order to get something that everyone else is not sold on. Oh, <laughs> And my apologies to everyone. I came back from Gamescom with something. It wasn't COVID this year, thankfully. But um, yeah, you if if Joshua gets me laughing too hard, I will be hacking and gagging, and I will try to mute in the meantime. But um, 
so look, look, we've already got questions coming in for, about Gamescom. So let's dive into Gamescom. And I want to initially start with your public facing strategy that you posted the week before Gamescom on how you were completely full up with projects and you were just going to, I can't remember what you said, hang out, Matt, enjoy you the are, show. You are, this is, Chi- I, this you, is Chinese whispers. Like, <laughs> like, this is not, this is not what I said. I, I said, so basically my inbox was completely full of uh, my regular Outlook inbox is already full of folks that I was already in communication with uh, wanting to set up meetings. And we had, uh, there were a few developers that I knew I wanted to meet in person um, that we were in the, the latter stages with, um, a few kind of trusted agents and, and contacts that um, I definitely wanted to make time for. Um, And I just ended up with a schedule that was already really tight. Um, And I I still, like, even, like, um, uh, a week before Gamescom, like, I was sacrificing the half hour I had assigned for for lunch one day uh, just just to to squeeze one more in. So, like, I was busy at Gamescom. Like, I, I had a lot of meetings. It was just with folks that I... I had already made contact with at shows like first uh, first playable and reboot and and uh, various other various other networking events. Um, so I just I didn't I didn't have the capacity to stare into the abyss of of. Sorry, that's slightly cruel. I love Meet to Match, uh, and I love the people who 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 run Meet to Match. That's it's great, but like I'm sure even they would admit, like the the bombardment that people <laughs> in biz dev roles get on that platform is a bit much at times. Like um, it's it's so Meet to Match, I absolutely adore for events I've never been to. Um, so first playable is a great example of that. Um, meet to match for, uh, that event was essential because I was going into, uh, an event where I, I didn't really have, like, I knew the biz dev people who were going alongside me, but I didn't necessarily know the, the dev scene as well. Um, whereas Gamescom, like it's a show I've been to multiple times. I know who's going, I know who I want to talk to. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's what ended up happening. That was a long, sorry, Jay, I took up a long time just saying I I was already full. Don't don't worry. I am already going to have Ash clip the part where you referred to meet to match as an abyss and then tried to backpedal (laughs) your way out of that comment. And I'm sending it to, to Fedor and Onsgard like as soon as we're done. It's like, yeah, I love you. I love you. Please don't hate me. No, I mean it was it. It was what saved me this year is one, and I will note that as you said, you know, you met with the people that you like and your trusted people that I never saw you last week. So apparently, I'm not on that list of hey, people that you have my email. You know? <laughs> like, if you want to meet, but. Um, I, you know, we've recently hired a, a beauty person and she is fantastic. And it was the first time that I got to use the transfer this meeting to a colleague option in meet to match. And I was like, Oh, 
this is awesome. Um, but yeah, it's like both of us were, were full as well. There's just simply a lot of people at a show the size of Gamescom and you can't meet with them yeah. all. So um, for those of you listening, my pointer on that is in my meet the match profile. I always have my email address and my Calendly link and a note that says, if we can't meet at the show and you want to get in touch with me, here's how you do it. Um, and I do this week, I've already had five or six meetings that were overflow from, from Gamescom. Um, so overall your take on, on the show. Um, I really liked it this year. Um, I think this is the year where, um, events are fully coming back to life. I feel, um, I don't think it was last year. Um, there, I'm not going to name names, but there were a couple of events where I, I, I went to, and I felt like this is, this is not, this is not it. This is not where it was, um, in 2019. Um, but now it feels like the healing has taken place. Uh, the, the, frankly, some of the psychological damage that happened from, from COVID has, has started to heal, I feel, um, and and people feel more confident coming back to these kind of events and taking the precautions that they they personally feel that you know they need to take, um, uh, and I fully support that. Um, but it's good it's good to be at a show that feels vibrant, feels alive, and the quality's there. Like there's there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, going around the indie area of of Gamescom this year, there's lots of good stuff there um really 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 cool titles so i was really impressed this year i i i was too last year i mean gamescom is my favorite conference of all year all year long i mean because you have like all of us are there from the business side you also get all the excitement and the buzz and the electricity from the consumer side and i love cologne i mean it's just a yeah. awesome it's an awesome city yeah but last year you could walk around and tell it was like especially in the consumer halls, it was evident. It's like basically publishers were phoning it in. It's like, we're going to have a booth because we feel like we should, but we're not going to put any real solid effort into it. And this year I felt very much that it was, it was back. Yeah. Um, so, all right, let's dive into first questions. One of them that are, right, let's pull up Sanders first from LinkedIn. So she says, how was Gamescom? I feel that there wasn't as much investment from our side of the table. You know, the ones that are typically providing the investment or the money or whatever. How did you see, you know, that outlook? Do you, did you get a sense that there were a lot of people, a lot of publishers, a lot of investors there that were looking for titles or was it more overflow from developers and companies? I, I think as so there are definitely publishers looking for titles i think uh, i i don't think i'm speaking speaking out of turn here i feel like we are going through a period of folks being really ruthless and being really unforgiving in their their green light process and and going for stuff um that uh perfectly aligns um there's less there's less um chances being taken with with you know stuff that's slightly wild and slightly out there at the moment um which is understandable 
at the moment. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll come out the other side and uh, those more wider, more creative things, there's more there's more appetite of that industry-wide. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I do think people are hungry for titles. They're just being cautious at the moment is all. And, and we are, especially as yesterday, cemented the fact with Gearbox publishing layoffs and the complete shutdown of Volition, which is just frankly sad. And yeah, I mean, all, anytime something somebody gets you know shut down, and people lose jobs. It, it is it is sad. But to have a company that goes back thirty years all the way to descent, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's rough. That's and, a piece of history. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the games that I remember playing, and it was like so just mind-blowing that you can move your ship around in complete 3d yeah. um uh, and we're seeing a lot we are seeing some investors and i am going to say some that are cooling their jets and backing off because you know basically embracer bought everybody and then realized that was not a sustainable business model but at the same time i can tell you there are plenty of publishers looking for titles and there are more investors as well and new funds being brought up that you know that, that we've talked to so it's it's like everything else yes some of it is shutting down but there's more of it opening up too it's yeah. certainly not a you know death's call for for investment but you, you have to remember how many people are out there looking for that investment too so um it's it's the normal cycle we go through every five years in this industry. Um, so from Aaron, so what is salt being sought out to be pitched to you and what type of game ideas are you looking for? And we can take that to a macro level too. It's like, what, what trends are you seeing and what do you think is going to be most sought after? Um, so... Our Secret Mode's most successful title, uh, external title to date, um, is a little to the left. Uh, it is done extraordinarily well. Um, the DLC launched this year, and uh, not only did the, the DLC do well, it benefited the the core game itself. Um, and that, and a little to the left, is in that kind of new wave of wholesome, cozy titles. Um, that I think uh, is impossible to ignore right now. Um, they have their own direct at this point, right? Like they had um, the wholesome snack ahead of the the game awards. I think that scene that um, and it's one of those things. Wholesome's one of those like wholesome cozies. One of those vague things that is kind of ill defined, but you know it when you see it. Um, tends to be characterized by like non-violent gameplay. Um, but still, I would say that um, wholesome games are still very interactive at their core. Um, little to the left, um, for anyone who's not familiar with a little to the left, it's essentially uh, a, a 2D animated tidy up, like you're tidying up, cleaning up, organizing uh, things and spaces and your pet cat occasionally comes in and ruins things and and pushes pushes things over and, and stuff like that um 
uh, like it's it's a it's it's cozy, it's simple, but it's still very interactive. It's still it's still kinesthetic, right? Um, same with Vemba, which launched this year. The 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 cooking game, like it's very it's non-violent, but it's very you know kinesthetic. You get it's very tactile. Um, I think those games are on the rise, and I think that is. Um, I think it's due to the the diversification of the the, the game playing audience uh, more than anything. I think uh, I think we're long past the days where you and me, Jay, are the the kind of like I feel like I'm the default character creator uh, option for what you would describe <laughs> as a gamer. Um, I, I think we're we're past that now. Like I think the the audience is is much more diverse. Um, and that means there's a wider appetite for a different kind of experience. And I think the wholesome scene is becoming like the spearhead for that movement and that change. Um, and yeah, so there's a long-winded way of me saying wholesome games, cozy games are definitely like on an upward trajectory. Um, I would also say, like, so um, Still Wakes the Deep. Uh, which okay, that's what I was getting ready to ask, because yeah, you yeah. have these cozy games and then you have yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So Still Wakes the Deep is developed by uh, the Chinese Room, um, which is one of the Sumo Group's uh, internal studios. Um, that is a horror game, a narrative-focused horror game set on an oil rig uh, just off the coast of Scotland. Um I can't talk too much about it because I, you know, some stuff is still hush hush. Um, but like, yeah, that's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. That's very serious, very, um, very dark and and very spooky. Um, I do think horror games are are kind of going through an interesting period right now. I think um, the time of the the stealth em up horror game is kind of over. The kind of the horror game that uh amnesia back in 2010 kind of uh made the shape of but you're getting stuff like dredge um from uh team 17 which is like combining kind of management sim rpg stuff with horror uh you had signalis last year um uh which was like offering up a very kind of retro take on survival horror um, I do think horror is in a is in a really interesting space, um, and like I, I I see games so stuff like Amnesia, stuff like Outlast. I feel like is um, uh, a game the the horror games that were really successful in the the 2010s kind of period, but the game that I see talked about most. Uh, often in kind of cultural circles from that era is Soma. And Soma didn't like sell as well, at least initially didn't sell as well as um, and Amnesia did, The Dark Descent. But people kept discovering it and kept kept it kept coming back up again. And the reason why is because the story is incredible for Soma. Like I think... Um, uh, of frictional's output like narratively soma is impeccable um and the way that it used so the for me the the things that were least um interesting about it were the kind of traditional hide in a closet monster type horror the thing that was most interesting was just the concepts it came up with in 
there's there's one sequence where I'm just talking about Soma now. Sorry, Jay, I will get back to business. Uh, there was this, making my life this, easy. Uh, I don't have to do anything uh, here. This is, um, this is great. There was this, there was this sequence where you loaded up an AI that's a copy of somebody's consciousness into a computer, and you're warned that if this if this consciousness gets too emotionally uh, stimulated, it will just die. Um, and you need to extract information from this consciousness. Um, and the horror from that sequence is like trying to get this information out of this consciousness. You overstep, it gets too emotional, dies, and you have to load it up again. And like that was just, I, it's the thing was like, it's very interactive. It's, it's gameplay. It's choice driven. Like it's, it's very like, it's, it's not kind of the kind of passive um, exp uh, experience that a lot of um, kind of horror indie games are doing at that time, and I think that that is uh, I think that is of interest to folks now. Um, games um, in the horror space that lead with narrative, but use narrative and gameplay in interesting ways beyond the kind of traditional monster closet approach like the ideas are what's scary the concepts are what's scary rather than just the big bad monster um so i do i do think horror is in, in, in a really interesting space right now um yeah i tell you what um i know this you didn't ask me this i, I i'm i'm predicting that cards cards start like there's been a lot of games that put cards in like Neon White had cards. Inscription was the big hit as well. I feel like that that's maybe on the way out. Um, not that like I don't think I'm not saying like a card game will come out tomorrow. But, but we and it said that tell. six months and twelve months ago too, and yet they still they keep still coming sell. because okay. people keep coming up with different ways of doing it. That's true. It's yeah. it's you know when I heard that there was going to be. A Marvel version of XCOM, I was just like totally stoked. I was like, this is quite possibly the perfect game. And then they're like, and it's a deck builder. And I went, for fuck's sake, what? You're no, you don't put a deck builder on XCOM. And it came out and I played the shit out of that game. Like I I I love I love it. Um, yeah, it's it, it's really strong. And and it's we're continuing. I saw games last week. When people sit down, they're like, I have a deck builder, and I'm like, Oh god. And then you know, they go through it and I'm like, Okay, this is oh, this is different. Okay. This is different, yeah. this is new. Yes. So there's your tip for the developers out there with deck builders. Don't lead with I have a deck builder because we're all gonna have that same reaction. You have an interesting game that brings in aspects of whatever you want to call it, but don't yeah. lead with I have a deck builder. Um, all right, we have Tons of questions coming in here. All right, so this is one that I don't know the answer to that I want you to answer for me. How is the strike in Hollywood affecting the gaming industries? Can I can I be honest? I feel very ill-equipped to answer this question. Um, I personally have not felt this um, and have not felt touched by this. Um, I'm interested to hear your take on it, Jay, uh, because I feel very ill-equipped to answer this question. So I will put the spin on it from the pandemic side. So yeah. what we have is a lockdown, I mean, uh, basically a lockdown in Hollywood because the directors renegotiated all their contracts, but now the 
actors and the writers are on strike, which means effectively nothing mm -hmm. outside of maybe reality shows can be produced because unless yeah. it was already written and completely filmed. Um, yeah. During the pandemic, what we saw was a lot of studios who do special effects and post-production work on game on movies turning around and going, okay, we need revenue. We need right. to get revenue coming in. We're already working yeah. in Unreal because whether you know it or not, all the shit that you see on Ahsoka and Mandalorian, and these that's all done in Unreal. And yeah. they were coming to our industry and saying, okay, course, is there yeah. stuff that we can do? I don't believe, and I'm, and I'm not a guild-carrying member of any of this, so don't hold me to it. I don't believe that the strike prevents actors, actresses, and writers from working on games. Well, it's it's the Screen Actors Guild, yes, right? Yes, that's so what I'm saying. I, 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 my assumption was that it was TV, streaming services, film, yes. and not games. Um, so, so yeah. if we see anything, I think it may be there is talent available for games that is not mm. typically available. Yeah. And if we if this goes on and on and on, then people are going to get tired of watching reality TV eventually. Unfortunately, they haven't to this point. That's why we still have it. But we're probably going to see more people playing games. I'm not saying this is a good thing for us, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, I don't think there's been I don't think anyone is prevented from doing stuff on games because of these strikes. I yeah, and I, I'm certainly in the circles where I feel like I would be told if if something was like yeah, same crossing here. crossing picket lines, if you know what I mean. Um, so I, I feel pretty confident that it it hasn't impacted us in that way. Um, but I hadn't even thought um, it was a great point about like the more kind of technical artistry in the film industry being impacted by the strikes as well, and how they might be you know coming over to us looking for work because of course like. You're right. Like, especially when it comes to like 3D modeling and things like that, it's a lot of the same, same techniques, yep. just maybe less less granular um, in terms of fidelity of detail. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer to this question. I'm I'm just I try to I try to to J stick. To Joshua and I are, are here to guess the answers to all your questions. Um, all right, so from Stuart on LinkedIn, do you focus on games with DLC, games as a service, and games with big IP or more one-time releases? Um, so Sumo Group and Secret Mode uh, are absolutely looking for games with DLC and uh, gas-style models. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Stampede uh, is very much like uh, a game that will have a long-term plan uh, post its release. Um, and there are titles in the works within Sumo Group that fit that model. Um, but at least externally, um, uh, for the external partnerships, I'm kind of looking for stuff that's kind of counter-programming um, to, to titles like that. Um, so like stuff like A Little to the Left, stuff like Lodlenort, right? Things that kind of uh, fill a gap that and and a target an audience that won't you know 
I'm not speaking out of turn here. Though people who like those games probably don't want to play Stampede, which is fine. So we have games for those folks. Um, so yeah, um, uh, it, to answer your question more succinctly, yes, we are. In terms of my objectives and what I'm looking for for external partnerships, um, it's more kind of counter to that at the moment. But y'all don't do free to play or anything like that, do you? Uh, it's. I'm not going to say it's off the table. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. You've obviously gone through media training now, Joshua. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So from Hernando on, on LinkedIn, what does a publisher pay attention to when they see a studio pitching their first commercial game? Um. So for me a lot of it comes down to the team and how much I believe in the individuals. Um, like I have like this, this line, I, I keep coming back to. Um, so I have this like pitch, uh, pitch presentation that I've done multiple times, uh, which is basically top tips for pitching to a publisher. And, and one of those things, is, uh, one of those lines, one of my slides is, Perfection is overrated. Passion is everything. Um, what I'm trying to convey there is you have to be excited by the idea. Um, when I say perfection is overrated, I'm not saying competency is overrated. <laughs> like, I'm not saying I want you to prepare. I want you to done your research. But, like, don't beat yourself up over, like, one typo on one slide or not knowing a certain specific bit of specialized information that's not even in your field. Don't beat yourself up about that. But like, if I'm sitting through your presentation and it's technically perfect, but you don't care about what you're pitching to me, I don't care about what you're pitching to me. Um, So I want to feel that fire in your belly. Like I want to feel that like this is coming from a place of of genuine passion because there's no point there's no point going any further if it, if if it's not passing that gut check um i do i do i do want to have a solid grasp on the core of your game the core idea of your game um a big mis- and this is a a point that i've repeated at multiple panels and multiple times i've been asked this question if you spend 20 minutes of your pitch detailing the backstory and character details of of your world and just mapping out i'm already asleep um i the thing is this is not me coming out against like narrative focused games or narrative driven games in fact some of my favorite games of all time are narrative driven games disco elysium absolute all-timer absolutely love it um the problem is that stuff is best served and best experienced in context, in the actual game itself. Um, if you present me a spreadsheet of law, it's just not engaging. Um, the pit, like different medium, uh, different um, uh, different considerations. But I always come back to this: where uh, Vince Gilligan, when he was initially pitching Breaking Bad, he didn't pitch it as 
Guy gets cancer. He starts to get into meth. Oh, it goes wrong. Ooh. He meets <laughs> Jessica. Like he did pitch it that way. His pitch for Breaking Bad was: we take Mister Chip, <coughs> and we turn him into Scarface. That was his pitch, and and that's great. That's a great line because you sum up the personality of the show in a sentence. And I think you should take the same approach to storytelling and 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 the personality of the game. But the thing you want to get across more than anything is like, what's the core? What's what's that core loop? What's that core experience? Like, because all the bells and whistles, like um, the the kind of wrapper around it, like as long as you've got like a good art deck and, and things like that, there's a degree of trust that that will come along. But if the core of your game fundamentally isn't fun, then um, it will never be fun. Um, so that has to be nailed when you're initially pitching. Um, whether that be like, um, it depends on the experience level of the team. If you're a young team, I, I need to see a prototype. I'm sorry. I know it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. I just have to see playable um, um, to progress it meaningfully through the process. If you're more experienced and you have a track record, um, and um, and the game is in line with games that you have successfully uh, delivered in the past and, and got commercial and critical success, there is more leeway in terms of presenting that core experience in terms of like, like you know, like a paper pitch, essentially. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where the more experienced you are, the more you can get away with. The less experienced you are, the less you can get away with in terms of that, that detail that I need to see. Um, I'm waffling. Uh, Jay, give me give me a sense of direction. Is there anything you want me to touch on that I haven't touched uh, on? I need to get an idea of what your evening looks like because we've got questions that are like stacking and stacking and stacking. How much time I, do you have? I, I have enough time. I would like to eat at some point. Oh, um, you're just being, but... I get to eat at a conference. I get to eat at home. <laughs> oh, my um, God. But... Um, all right. Yeah, um, I, I'm fine for time. That was okay. me being talky. Um, I will say to add on my my one little point: do not fucking read me your pitch deck in a meeting. That absolutely. Oh, oh I feel like that, that's that should be pitching 101. Yes. Like your pitch. So, uh, oh, this is a good piece of advice. Um, have two pitch decks: uh, the one that you send over via email and the one that you present. Um, yes. The one that you present should be imagery. And the core, like core points that you absolutely want to like psychically imprint in the other person's mind, um, but not a lot of text, right? Not a lot of text. The the information should be in here. You should know it. You should know it before going into that call. And and like the more rehearsed and, and the more ingrained that information is. The more natural it will be as well. Like, like the ideal pitch is a conversation. Um, like, if it, if you obviously there are contexts where you're like at an event and you're up on stage. Obviously, you want to be a bit more kind of slick and and activate media training for that kind of environment. Um, but if you're like in a bar at develop. Um, sorry, I use a very UK-centric reference there. Uh, if you're in a bar in Cologne um, at Gamescom um, and you just, you know, got your laptop out, like 
some of the most memorable pictures I've ever had have just been like a back and forth, like mm -hmm. just a, a chat. Because the developer knew the pitch so well that they could just riff. They could just just talk and just have a conversation. Um, the most awkward pitches are the ones where uh, the dev is entirely reliant on their script um, in order to to get through. Um, it, it, it's just, it's painful. Um, like, yeah, absolutely do not just read from the slideshow. All right. If you are developing a game that necessitates breaking some gaming norms, mine combines a documentary film with gaming, should you even attempt to pursue a publisher or will they view it as too big of a risk? Um, research the publisher you're pitching to and make a judgment call based on their catalog. Um, there are developers who are better positioned to sell certain types of experiences than others. So um, I'm just going to say like an Annapurna, for example, yeah. sounds perfect for the kind of project that you're pitching um, because they have a track record with that kind of kind of more art house style experience and, and have been commercially successful in that space. Um, so um, uh, completely different area. Uh, this is more like a genre that uh, is more kind of understood, but is maybe on a down downswing at the moment. Uh, to 2D platformers, like I, I think it's common wisdom amongst most game scouts that unless you're absolutely certain that it's like shovel knight level quality or it's doing something really weird and unusual, uh, 2D platformers are a bit of a no-go. Um, uh, but... that, that, that ties right into this question I'm looking at. Okay. Are Metroidvania still in demand, especially if the Metroidvania combines elements from a niche game in another genre? They're absolutely still in demand, but they are a double-edged sword. Uh, Has someone Metro does a Metroidvania deck builder? <laughs> I think we talked about this last time. Did um, we find I'm, one? I, I think that there, I, there has to be a Metroidvania. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there has to be one. Um uh, Metroidvanias are a, a double-edged sword because they are absolutely popular when they hit. When they hit, they're great. Um, they, they make they make money. Um, but the audience for Metroidvanias is really, really discerning. Um, they want the cream of the crop. Um, and there's so many out there. There's there's tons of Metroidvanias on Steam right now. And it just makes it all all the harder to to kind of break through and cut through. Um, I guess like I wouldn't make a Metroidvania as your first game is all I would say. Like um, if you've got a great idea for a Metroidvania, put it in a drawer, get out another game in a genre where the competition is less fierce, prove to yourself that you can release a critically and commercially successful game and then get that Metroidvania out of your drawer again. Because um, if if it's your first project, that's going to be a rough sell uh, for, for any publisher out there. The the phrase that I always hear from publishers is, is someone going to buy this instead of buying Hollow Knight? Yeah. And even it's though that game is old, old at this point, it, 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 it's still a point. 
but... it's still dominant. I think I think with so I think with that it's more that you Hollow Knight is the measuring stick, and you're in a you're in a genre where that measuring stick matters. Um, like it's an audience that wants quality, like with a capital Q. Um, there, I, I don't want to bash on certain genres, but there are genres where that's not not the case. Um, I'm not a fan of this genre. I know it's so. As a game scout, I obviously know that they're massively commercially successful, and I have to be on the lookout for a really good one. I'm not the biggest fan of survival games because I feel like the, uh, frankly, I don't really like a lot of the ones that end up being successful. I I don't think that same kind of bar for kind of quality is being held up in that genre in that space. Um, I I to be super reductive, I see a lot of commercially successful seven out of tens in the survival space in a way that I don't see in the Metroidvania space. So there are safer genres, I guess, is what I'm saying um, than than that 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 genre. To my knowledge, no one has made a survival deck builder yet either. So, no. What would that even be? Like how what what's the I'm not the designer. Jay, Jay, pitch, <laughs> now you are. Pitch me the <laughs> pitch me the uh the deck building survival game. Don't um uh don't starve, I think could be done with deck building if you're drawing tools and resources. And then you have to combine them in a crafting mechanic. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. All right. Yeah, I'll, send, all right. I'll send you a contract. All right. Good job. Okay, cool. All right. Great. Um, next one. Are RPGs in demand? I feel like everyone's still figuring out their position on RPGs post the, uh, the, the last two months. The last two months. <laughs> um, so, like uh, the the elephant in the room in this conversation is Baldur's Gate Three. Um, uh, Baldur's Gate Three is uh, a fascinating case study. Um, developers are right in pointing out that um, the sheer resource and sheer production values of that game. I don't think that should not be the expectation for that genre. Uh, no. it, it's just it. Larian were in the right place at the right time. Um, and they built that trust over a long period of time. Um, not every developer um, is going to find themselves in that space. But if there is a lesson to be learned from Baldur's Gate 3, is that it is so uncompromisingly hardcore in terms of its design decisions. It's turn-based. Uh, it's, it's a game that requires rigor. Uh, it, it doesn't kind of hand things on a silver platter to you. Um, and um, it's a game that focuses on kind of density in encounter design and uh, things like that, rather than having a massive open world or open environment. Um, I do think I do. And, and it, and, that combined with the fact that it's a huge commercial success, right? Like it is doing things that um, you would view as poison to a larger mass market audience, 
and however however he is still still achieved uh, financial success i think what that proves is that like if there is a lesson to be taken from Baldur's Gate and is uh, able to be transferred into into other rpgs is that maybe the things that we view as anti mainstream is maybe not anti mainstream um maybe turn based is something that the mainstream is willing to embrace and and is uh, is willing to take on board um maybe games that do i mean the whole rigor conversation i feel like from software has addressed that already like elden ring was a huge success as well and and that's a game that that, that requires more rigor than even Baldur's Gate 3 does um so yeah i think like there are some assumptions that need to be challenged some um uh, views on player behavior and what players will accept what a mainstream player will accept uh that maybe need to be challenged and um and 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 yeah and and taking that into account in your design maybe your your rpg doesn't need to be uh, fast paced and and action driven maybe it can be slower paced and that's fine game business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. I'm managed to get uh, one of my core companions in a fight with another one, and they are dead within a third of the way through Act 1. I, I mean, love like, that game. It was like, okay, I they're just... dead. Um, the thing that I would take away from from Baldur's Gate and now Starfield, because Starfield, just with the the early access launch last night, is like the fourth highest played game this year already. Wow. Is wow. you need to understand, if you're making an RPG, yes, there's plenty of room RPGs. I was with Joshua at First Playable. I saw three RPGs at that show alone that can stand out from the crowd. You have to assume that 90% of your audience is playing one or both of those games at this point in time and attack it from the standpoint of, is my game one they're going to want to play when they finish Baldur's Gate or Starfield or so, Disco Elysium or one of these, these bigger titles? You don't necessarily have to build a 400-hour RPG. I, I mean, it, it, it's... it's um... 
hard to think of it this way because of how successful it was. But like, I, I would say like Disco Elysium is an example of like counter-programming, counter right? Yeah. Like um, a lot, uh, we kind of associate RPGs with either um, uh, the the highest of fantasy or um, very broad Star Warsian style sci-fi, right? Taking that genre, then applying it to uh, detective fiction, crime, crime fiction, um, and and then kind of drawing inspirations from things like True Detective, The Wire, uh, things like that. That was Disco Elysium's unique selling point, and it did it. Obviously, like in terms of execution, they just absolutely knocked it out of the park as well. But I, I you know, what other genres could be an RPG? Um, pitched at the right scale, right? I think when you get into like AAA budgets, you have to kind of play the favorites in terms of genre. Like you have to go Game of Thrones, you have to go Lord of the Rings. Um, but at that kind of like mid-range, the kind of like AA or indie, like there are genres that aren't covered um, that absolutely would work as an RPG. Disco Elysium proves it. So uh, look look to those other spaces. And remember, there's a ton of publishers out there. You've got options. Just because one of them isn't going to take it doesn't mean none of them are. Yeah. All right, next one from the Discord. Are publishers looking for games regardless of the engines used, or do they have specific engine preferences? That last bit has been on my mind for months. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like, If your game is in Unity or Unreal... It does reduce production risk because of the people that we can find and the experience, you know, the experience of said people in those engines to help out and assist and do, you know, work for hire, contract work, that kind of thing. Like, it's just the knowledge base, the wider knowledge base is much larger for those two engines um, than than any others. That being said, if a game is really good and I really like the team, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say no because it's in RPG Maker or Game Maker or something like that. There are examples of games that have sold very well um, that use those that you like. Um, Hotline Miami is in Game Maker, right? Um, uh, so, like, the, yes, there are preferences. But don't let the fear of those preferences rule your choices. Because um, there's always, if the game is good and the quality is there and we believe in the team, like, we'll bite the bullet. Like, we'll do it. After spending two years on programming the foundation and now being in the phase of assembling the world, is it even looking for a publisher? What value would be brought apart from capital? Now, we don't. I think there might have been a first part of this that we missed somewhere along the lines, but let's just look at it this way. What value does a publisher bring to a, a developer aside from a paycheck? Uh, more negotiating power when dealing with platform holders, I feel like is is one of the key things. Because um, we're not coming to platform holders with one game. We're coming to platform holders with a catalog of games. Um, and look... Um, the best trailer, the best uh, GIF on Twitter or X, uh, um, the best GIF on 
but like short video on TikTok does not buy you uh, the level of reach that being front and center on the Steam storefront or PlayStation storefront or Xbox storefront or insert platform holder here will get you. Like platformer, platformer, uh, platformer, platform holder <laughs> support um, is is the most powerful uh, powerful way of reaching your audience. There is, in my view, I, I don't know if you disagree, Jay, but like I think that's key. And I think when you have a publisher, you have that you have that uh, much more than you would otherwise um, as a as a single individual dev. Um, I also think, like, honestly, like, you can you can make a trailer yourself. You can do all those marketing, community management things yourself. It's good, but everything's a percentage slider, right? Like, the more you put into that, the more it takes away from the development of your game. And it's not your knowledge. It's not your specialism. It's not your 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 knowledge where your knowledge lies. Focus on what you're good at, and bring on people who who know what they're doing uh, for everything else. Um, and like, I know sometimes developers look at the percentage that they're sacrificing in order to to secure publishers, but a hundred percent of a hundred percent of five k is a lot less than fifty percent of five hundred k. You know. Um, you, you've got to you've got to take that into account. You've got to take into how much you're what how much you're buying for that percentage um, in terms of reach. Um, so yeah, a little bit of a wifty wifty wafty answer, but but I mean, yeah. but it all boils down to resources. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's whether that's resources that are going to a platform holder or resources that are being put towards marketing or yeah. other sorts of things it's a broad bucket of things to put in there, but you're getting access to more resources and experience people who know the market potentially better than, than you do. So we frequently say that the, the money is actually like one of the least important things to get from a good publisher. I mean, Absolutely. because there's a lot of places to get money. Um, here's a good question. From Zuking on Discord, how do publishers rate developers? And what are the first three or four points that are very important to be present? Um, rate developers. Um, I, I I do look for certain personalities within development teams. Like I feel like this is true of all teams, um, but for me, like it. it I just apply it to developers. Um, you need to have, uh, I say true of all teams, all, true of all teams in a creative industry. You need to have the agent of chaos creative person who's just full of all full of ideas, but is like, like we could do all this. You, you need that personality there. You need um, um, uh, the agent of order who's like the more kind of, uh, the 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 shape giving the production schedule shape and kind of like the cat herder yeah the cat herder um and then you just need the person who's like 
the bean counter, the money person. Like you need somebody who's like conscious of costs and conscious of that kind of thing. Now that per th those three personalities can sometimes be encompassed by one person. It can sometimes be like sometimes the finance and agent of order person is the same person, but like those are the kind of like if you just have the finance and order person personality types, you have a boring game. Uh, if you just have the chaos chaos person, the game's never coming out, and it's coming out over budget. Um, it's 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 the it's the free it's the it's the triforce. Like you need the free the free combined to have a cohesive uh, you. An interesting game, a creative game, uh, an exciting game that will eventually come out and within some kind of uh, scope that you agree to uh, when signing the contract. So I, I do look for those those kind of personalities. In terms of like material things that I look for, um, it's always useful to have some form of GDD, so game design document, that kind of outlines the overall plan for the game. Um, I do want some kind of like overall budget, preferably a budget that's break broken down further. Um, uh, a milestone delivery schedule and kind of a sense of like the the staff months um, involved to to, to, to deliver um, to that schedule. Um, and um, I'm, I'm never expecting like anything pretty from a prototype um, in an initial pitch. But if you have visual aids, like um, uh, people are, are really big into beautiful corners now where they just like take a part of the, uh, the demo, their uh, prototype, sorry, that they're pitching and just make it as beautiful as possible. But that's the only part of the prototype that's that, be that beautiful or concept art or that kind of thing, just something that helps spark my imagination. Um, that's that's all useful. I feel like we were going somewhere between the demented seven dwarfs of game development, where you have like happy and and sleepy, and then like what's my love language of game development? Because you know the the personas you had there are. Well, one, they're dead on accurate, and that's what yeah. was so funny about it. But yes, um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I threw the other one up there, you know, because you were on that that round anyway about the the perfect prototype. But I think you know, there's not ever really a perfect prototype to go out there. It's more of can you convince me that you can actually do what your slide deck is telling me you can do? Yeah. There's your perfect prototype. Um, Oh God, sorry. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, which, which one of these love languages I was. What are the concerns or deal breakers when publishers are evaluating a game from a development team that has little experience with very few games launched? Oh, I, yeah, uh, I, I know what the, my ultimate red flag is. Um, when a young team uh, says that we've got, we've got everything sorted, everything's fine. Um, like, don't worry about that. There are no risks. Uh, everything, everything's going to be a okay. You just give us the money. You do the marketing, and we're good to go. Immediately, that goes in the reject pile. Uh, I don't want. I, I'm not. I'm not pursuing that title. Uh, there are always problems. 
There are always risks. There is always something that is going to go wrong. There is no project in in existence where something hasn't gone wrong, where somebody doesn't have the skill set for to deliver a certain mechanic or something like that. The difference between the games that are delivered slickly and on the outside appear to be wow, that was a really polished, slick production versus the ones that on the outside look like they're fumbling, you know, missing the goal consistently is clear and honest communication. Uh, If I know about a speed bump before it appears in my view, I can plan for the speed bump. I can get, I can hire somebody to, go ahead of the road and dig up that speed road, speed bump and put some concrete down and there's no speed bump at all. It's gone because you told me it was there. Um, but if you try to hide the risks, the things that you don't know um, to a game scout or a biz dev person or whoever you're pitching to, um, you're not going any further. Um Be confident in the things that you know and the things that you uh, feel that that you strongly believe you can deliver. Be honest about your gaps in knowledge and be honest about the areas where you're not as knowledgeable. Um, Yeah, I I, I concur. Mm -hmm. Should we include the build and budget on first contact with a publisher? Um. Uh, preferably, I would like to see uh, a prototype budget. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the detailed breakdown. You should you should have the the big overall number for an initial pitch. Like absolutely, and so uh, like a kind of loose breakdown of how that that kind of maps out. Um, you don't need to you don't need to deliver like an Excel sheet of where all those numbers are going in the initial initial pitch um i would like to see a prototype if you're a new dev yes i would like to see a prototype i'm a little bit more i'm a little bit more willing to see just a paper pitch for devs who've proven themselves next up how many publishers should we reach out to at a time should we wait with reaching out to the ones at the top of our list um I think you should you should be targeted in your approach. For, don't when I say targeted, I don't mean like you pitch to you send your pitch to one or two publishers. It should be like a handful. It should be like um, you know a, a ten or so. I don't know. I'm pulling a number out of my my ass there. It should it should be it should be a decent number of publishers that you pitch to at first, but it should be targeted. Like you should have done your research. You should know that the the game that you're pitching um, is in their wheelhouse, and then kind of have like it, it's like applying for university, I guess. Like you have your like the, your the top the top universities that you want to go for and then you have your backup plans and i i would view publishers the same way like you have like your 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 harvards your your oxford universities and then you have the universities that you'd be happy to go with but aren't aren't the ones that you're most excited for so that's the way i would approach it send your game to every applicable publisher that you have researched 
Okay. Do not get tunnel vision. I see developers do this all the time. And, they're, oh, and yeah. I meet them and they're like, well, there's only one real publisher we want to work with. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's Devolver. But what, what, besides that, what is it? You can't yeah. do that. You Because what happens is you sit down and your, your bean counter person goes, okay, we've got three or four months of runway left before we're out of money. Mm -hmm. And okay, I send my bill to Devolver because that's who I want to work with. Well, it takes Devolver three or four months to get back to you. And they go, well, no, yeah. it's not a good fit for us. And now you're because yeah. you, you absolutely do your research, like Joshua says, but send your bill to every applicable publisher at the same time. Do not sit around and wait on somebody because that's a very good way to just simply yeah. tube your company. Yeah, uh, it's not, uh, so you can get really late in the green light process, things can look good, and then mm -hmm. the game is doesn't pass, and it's yep. a no. Um, you do not want to find yourself in a situation where you have no other options. Um, uh, it's not over until pen goes to paper, or uh, whatever DocuSign link. I've had them. <laughs> I've had two <laughs> deals go to right after that. I used to say that. Now I yeah. say the deal's not done until you get paid on it. That's yeah. the um, that's yeah. the new one. Um, is it wise to get a publisher for your first commercial release, or understand how the process works first? Um, I, I feel like getting a publisher will help you understand how the process works. Mm -hmm. Um. I think it's it's a much safer uh, safer um, environment um, to learn that process and figure out that process than than going out completely alone. Um, no guarantees, right? Like, you know, sometimes you sign with a publisher in a game and the game doesn't sell, and that's just the reality. But at least like. Like you're you're surrounded by experienced people who are knowledge sharing, kind of holding your hand through the process, who've done like who've prepped games for um, Microsoft submission process about a thousand times, and they know the pitfalls and the uh, don't do that. Like you, you know, that's I made that mistake the first time I did it. I'm just going to tell you that that that's a pitfall, so you can avoid it entirely. Um, I, I think I think do both at the same time. Like you should view the your first publisher relationship as a like knowledge sponge time. Learn everything, figure it out. How much say will a developer generally have on when to release the game when partnered with a publisher? See, this is entirely entirely dependent on who you're published with a publisher because publishers. No publisher is the same. Every publisher has its own culture. Every publisher has its own personality. Um, my advice is to review, uh, thoroughly review the terms of your agreement and and establish how much um, how much influence over the decision making you have. Um, uh, you know, uh, I I always want you know developers to be part of that conversation. Um, to be um, uh, to for it to be a collaborative process, um, but you're only gonna you're only gonna feel.
secure in that kind of relationship if you're uh, during the initial signing of that agreement. Make sure if 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 this is important to you, if this aspect of the relationship is important to you, make sure you have a lawyer. You know, positioning yourselves as such. Make uh, sure you have a lawyer anyway. signing the agreement. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Don't don't sign. have a lawyer. Um, for, uh, one, have a lawyer. But two, like, make sure you're communicating that to your lawyer, like that this is important to you um, when when negotiating the agreement. So yeah. Are publishers currently interested in episodic releases similar to games like Life is Strange? Um, I'm not, uh, but I can't speak for every publisher. Um, I don't. I I think the expanse. I I haven't looked at numbers. I get the sense the expanse is doing well because um, I hear hear about it quite a bit. Um, but there aren't a lot of outside of Life is Strange. There aren't a lot of episodic games out there right now. Um, so, yeah, uh, they are very very tough to sell to publishers. Yeah, it is not something I would recommend. Yeah. When do you think a studio should aim to release alone without a publisher? When, when you have an established name, when you like, so for example, a, um, a, a great example of this is Supergiant Games, uh, the Hades folks. Um, I believe Bastion, their first game, was published under Warner Brothers. I don't know if Bastion is still under Warner Brothers or. Or so, forgive me for my ignorance. I, I I don't know if that passed over to Supergiant Games at a certain point, but I know at at launch, uh, Bastion was with Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's back with Supergiant now. It's back with Supergiant now. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny uh, because the trailer still shows Warner Brothers on the on the splash screen. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, interesting. Um, but um, yeah, like they have a name. They're established. Like their name. Uh, will attract an audience, will attract ears, will attract eyes. Um, so getting to that, but and like, look, not a lot of develop. Even developers that have had commercial hits are not necessarily in that position. Then you get people who are really lucky, like Team Cherry, who self self published Hollow Knight, and then you know it wasn't immediate. It was kind of a slow burn. I think the Switch release kind of um, helped them, but. Hollow Knight smashed it out of the park, uh, both commercially and critically. And now their Team Cherry is in a position where they they have a lot of runway. Hence, why I, I assume like Silk Song is is suffering from uh, some kind of perfect, perfectionist streak uh, from Team Cherry and and them having infinite budget to be perfectionists. Um, but like the, the, they can they can release Silk Song on their own because. They have a captive audience. Like everyone's looking at them. Um, so I would say, if you somehow the stars align and 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 uh, you know everything is in your favor, you find yourself in that position, then yeah, sure, you don't need a publisher. Um, but very few developers find themselves in that that position. There's one other case. When you have yeah, pitched your game to every single possible right. publishing target, yeah, you are a hundred percent confident that your game, despite the fact 
it didn't get a publisher is going to be a success. You have plenty of financial cushions, so you're not going to lose your home in the process of doing this. Then you launch. Okay. Because there are, it's, it's like Joshua just said, those three, and I'll add coffee stain to that, you know, as well. I can't imagine there were a lot of publishers when they first pitched Goat Simulator that were going, oh, this is going to be great. You're basically taking a physics engine and goats and Tony Hawk Pro Skater and it together, and it's going to turn into that. But there are situations, but it's certainly not, you shouldn't forego looking for a publisher because you believe you know how to publish a game yeah. or you saw somebody else do it and therefore you know how to do it better until you have actually done it and been through the process at least once, preferably twice or more. Don't. Um, oh, this will be fun. What genres are almost automatic no when looking into teams that are developing their first game? 2D platformers. In fact, platformers full stop, whether they're 2D or 3D. Everyone points to a hat in time. Everyone goes, a hat in time did well. And I say, name another one. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not Mario. Um, <coughs> um, uh, yeah, I uh, 2D, 2D, 3D platformers. Uh, unless, like, unless you, I mean, again, there. Th this is another example of a of a developer who doesn't need anyone anymore. But unless you're Yacht Club Games, or uh, I was going to say Team Meat, but I, I don't think that's true anymore. Um, unless you're like, you know, absolute top of your game, it's probably going to be a no. Um, I, I tell you, I, I tell you what, 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 what would be a no for me right now, additional straight down the middle kind of racing game. Let's kind of comparing itself to like a Forza or a GT. Like if you're going to do like racing it has to be weird it has to be different it has to be really wild and creative if you're just making a car game with cars in it uh like i'm sorry but no one's gonna drop playing forza horizon 5 to play your car game no one's gonna stop playing um gran turismo the latest version of gran turismo i'm just trying to avoid saying a number there because i've i've forgotten what number they're up to um i think it's five um i think it is five. Gran it's five okay good um no one's gonna stop playing that to play to play your car game uh so that would be an automatic no from me um uh really Sports games, yeah, you got there before me. Sports games is a no. Fighting games, um, again, like everyone says, Skullgirls did really well. Name another indie fighting game. Um, uh, I'm actually thinking of another one. What was that one where you just kicked? What do you remember that one where it was just kicks and nothing else? No. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, fighting games, like no one's going to put down Street Fighter to play your fighting game. No one's going to put down Tekken to play your your fighting game. Um, yeah, there, there are specific genres where um, franchise, certain franchises are absolutely dominant and no one survives outside of those franchises. Um, so yeah, that, those are my answers. 
the the ones that are the toughest to sell. Yeah. Um. Next one. Is it okay as a developer to say that with your company, you only want to make the game you're pitching? I heard publishers generally prefer to fund companies that build a portfolio of games, but not sure about this statement. I think I think it's fair to say that most publishers want, like the best case scenario from any developer-publisher relationship is a long-term relationship. So if if I'm looking to sign your project, I'd really would also like to sign game two. Um, I, I would really like to 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 sign your next title. Doesn't necessarily have to be the sequel to that game, um, but if if the game was successful, if your first game was successful and commercially uh, commercially successful, um, I, I I'm absolutely interested in your next project. Like pitch me, let's go, and you've got a leg up on on everyone else that's pitching to me. Uh, because, like, I know, I know you can deliver, and I know you've 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 done good by us. So, yeah, I, I I'm always looking to to foster something long term. Like, my um, core core keepers is a signing. I, I'm not talking about secret mode. The people from secret mode listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm naming a game that I signed elsewhere. But core keeper for me um, is the ultimate example of like the benefit of relationship building and fostering relationship um with a developer because we we sold out published uh, the a game before that from Pugstorm called Radical Rabbit Stew which critically and um in terms of user reviews did very well it was kind of like 8 out of 10 um that kind of thing on on Steam um and and various other places uh, but it it didn't do the numbers, and like I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for saying that because it's obvious. Just looking at at Steam, um, Radical Rabbit Stew didn't um, didn't perform what we were hoping. Um, but we loved sold out. Loved working with. Um, I keep saying sold out. Sorry, Fireshine people. Fireshine loved um, working um, with Pugstorm, and we knew that if if this team um, kind of worked on a new pitch that was maybe slightly more commercial we could we could knock it out of the park with this team that like there's enough talent there they know what they're doing let's let's find the pitch that 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 reaches people and that that pitch was core keeper um and uh core keeper is still in early access but it's it's been a huge success for fireshine uh it's absolutely um done huge numbers um so like i i think there's there's worth in taking the longer view there there's absolute worth because sometimes like the first game isn't quite the hit everyone's hoping for but sometimes the second and third game is um and and then then the the you know the the checks start cashing in um so I, I mean, as a developer, I would aim to have a long-term relationship with a publisher. I think it's more fruitful for both parties. All right. I want to take this one first because this is absolutely one of my biggest pet peeves and it drives me absolutely nuts. So Hernando asks, speaking of money, do you have an average of what a publisher is willing to invest in a first commercial game from a studio with no previous work? No. What drives me absolutely crazy and this happened not this 
time at Gamescom, but last year at Gamescom, is when I get pitched a game and, you know, myself, Joshua, anyone who does scouting BD in the industry can do nearly instant napkin math in our head on number of people you need, how long it's going to take and where you're located in the world to get rough estimates on budgets. And I get pitched a game that was easily a seven-figure development deal and they tell me that they need $250,000. And I said, yeah, why? There's it's no way you can do flag. that. Yeah. And they said, well, we had a, an advisor that said that this is our first game and no publisher is going to give us more than that. That, that advisor is, is... that advisor sucks. That's it's, that is not remotely true. Yeah. I mean, you do have to, generally prove that you can get it done and is your probability of walking in with a gta 5 2000 person eight-year development cycle you know nine figure (laughs) budget realistic no no but there's there's not a if you can walk in there and you tell me you need you know 1.2 million dollars to make this game and show me that you can do it I have seen teams very first game was a two and a half million dollar project easily yeah. and it got a publisher. And 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 like often when a publisher rejects something based on it's it's very much an us problem, not a you problem, right? Like we we know what we have to play with, uh, right? We know what 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 the cap is. Um and off the, 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 there are lots of times where you you look at a game and you go, "I really like that game. I really like this team. It's too too rich for our blood." But... I can't afford it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the answer to that is just pitch to someone else because the answer will be different uh, from a different publisher. Um, it goes back to the point I made before: like honest, honesty is the best policy. Like, be honest about what you're worth and and what the project is going to cost to deliver. Um, because trying to downplay it, trying to kind of, uh, as you say, play off, play off a, a bigger budget title as a smaller budget title, it just sends red flags. It just immediately sends up red flags, and, and you're not going to get anywhere. Just, just be honest. You may have the best of intentions, like that team that was pitching to me, you know, had, but the reaction from our side of the table is immediately they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Because, you know, if we don't ask you why you have that low number, then, you know, I don't know. It's because you had bad advice. You know, I may look at it and go, okay, they don't know the risks involved. They don't know how many people they're going to need. They don't know how to project plan. And so, Hernando, there is no average. There is no minimum. It depends publisher to publisher. Don't fall into that trap. And if someone tells you that there is... Tell them to come talk to me and Joshua. And they you, they haven't spoken to Game Scouts and, to get that advice. Yeah. And, and we will call them very bad names. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, whoa, wait, hold on. I skipped one. So Lee says, it seems like Secret Mode is not afraid of online multiplayer games considering turbo golf racing and make way. Any advice for indies building PvP online multiplayer games in the current market? You've got to have a unique hook. Uh, you've got to so both of those games have a unique flavor right one of them is a racing game combined with uh, a golf experience 
and the other is one where you construct the uh, uh, construct the course as you go uh, collaboratively along with the other players. They both have a weird flavor that offers something different. Um, so if you're making a multiplayer game, um, I think you I think you have to counter program. You have to 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 have one foot in the familiar and one foot in the unknown. All right, Joshua, I promise I'm going to let you eat. I've got like okay. this one and four more, and I just sent Dan a note that said, anybody, anybody else has questions now, drop them in the Discord channels, and we'll answer them there instead of live, because otherwise I think we'll be here for the next you know, two or three hours. And it's only lunchtime for me, so I can do that, but I don't know <laughs> if you can. Um, from LinkedIn, do you have a list of developers or publishers who want to help from a brand new video game idea? Short answer. The no. thing is, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, well, because like ideas, ideas are cheap. Uh, I hate to say that. Like um, everyone has an idea in the industry of games that they want to make. It's execution that matters, right? So. Um, no, uh, because like ideas, I can get anywhere. Like, what about my right? deck building survival game? I mean, well, I'm still expecting a prototype and a budget and a GDD. I've been so doing you... this 25 years, Joshua. You can trust me with your money. Well, Joshua doesn't trust me with his bar tab. Uh, it's uh, like, no. <laughs> 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 we, we've done this before. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, if a solo dev pitches to you and it's their first time project, do you see that as a red flag or do you look at the project for what it is? Um, it makes me very nervous to the point of wanting to say it's a red flag. I, I guess it depends on the scale and scope of the project. Um, so I've there's a like a recent trend of like really small when I say small I mean in terms of scope not in terms of length of the experience but like really small scope um indie games that are being made by couples right now um I don't know if you've noticed that Jay um but I um, actually have and it yeah. always impresses me because my wife flat out tells me she will never work with me um so I I, I to me that sounds like a cuz like Something's got to break down there, whether it be the, the romantic relationship or the the working relationship. And now um, we're going to get a picture into you know Joshua's psyche in his personal life. But anyway, um, but, um, <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah, like uh, the the you know uh, Max Inferno is a couple who who delivered a really really good game. So I, I'm not like adverse to small small teams or one person teams working on games it depends on the game though if you're like and i genuinely had this uh I, if you're a developer picturing me no man's sky uh but your entire dev team is you you and that's not happening like no not in a million years um so i guess it's like you you're starting with you're you're starting with a bit of a a debuff uh, in terms of my perception of you, but you can win back that trust uh, as long as you 
you're realistic and you show me the right things. This is one we get a lot. If and when should a studio use Kickstarter? I think your answer, uh, once you've exhausted all your publishing options, I think Kickstarter is a good option, right? Um, it goes a bit further, though, because it, okay. then we had, I met the, the new head games person at Kickstarter last week, but we had Anya Combs on here multiple times when she was there, and the slap in the face that, you know, she, she lays out is 80 to 85% of the money you raise in your Kickstarter is going to come from your existing community. And what we end up seeing is a lot of these invent these indie teams saying, I'm going to build a community with a Kickstarter. And that's not the case. It's not ever going to happen. Yeah. You will not have a successful Kickstarter unless you already have a big uh, right. yeah. community. Yeah. So yeah. even if you've already exhausted every publisher, it's not so if you don't have a big community. Set up a Discord. Uh, get yourself on Steam, like just get that snowball rolling down the mountain before you do Kickstarter. Yeah, cool. All right, two more. One and then one more, and then we'll let you go eat. How much of a risk do you see a team that needs to do the majority of its hiring after getting finances? In this case, the team is currently the programmer and designer that made the prototype, and what can be done to mitigate that risk? And this question was heavily upvoted. Um, if you're a first time dev team, yeah, this is a big, big risk. Um, I think you, you kind of, if you're a first time dev team, you, you should have the shape of your core team. If there are like, you know, contract work that needs doing whatever, fine. But like the shape of your core team should be in place if, if you're, this is your first project. Um, again, I, I know this may be a frustrating answer, but it, it depends on how much experience you have. Uh, uh take a drink, Jay. Um, <laughs> um, if you're coming to me with that kind of skeleton crew and with plans to hire people, but you, you have experience you can prove that you've delivered games in the past. Everyone in that skeleton crew can prove. Then I am more willing to go down this path with you. If you can't prove that, then it's a no. Um, so, yeah, it really, it, again, it depends on the experience again. It, it's not, I'm laughing because it's not like a tired answer. It's like literally the motto of the show. And it's like, I have yeah. it written like right yeah, there. It depends. Hello. All right, but so I understand that if you don't know who you need, or if you just say we're a programmer and an artist or programmer designer, and we need three more programmers and two more. But what if you already know the people that you want to bring on? So you just can't afford it until you get funding. So the the thing is, when the experienced devs present me that plan, they always already know. Like it's it's without question. They already know that who they want to hire, and they they'll often say we've got like soft uh, confirmation that this person will will be on board once the money comes through. 
um, inexperienced devs never do. So I guess I, I guess in the moment I didn't feel the need to bring it up because I feel like, of course, right? Like experienced devs always have somebody in mind because they've been around the block and they've worked with, they want to work with the people they like. Um, whereas, yeah, if you're inexperienced, you don't know who to turn to. And a lot of times if you're inexperienced, you don't even know who you need to hire to. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't know what you don't know. All right. Last question. And for all the other questions that are out there that are bouncing around, drop them in one of the Ask the Expert uh, questions, answers, uh, cold medicine's kicking in, channels, and we, we will get it addressed. So last one from LinkedIn. What would you say would make you interested in talking with a fresh indie studio pitching their first title? I think this one might be loaded. <laughs> do, do you want to do you want to add me on LinkedIn after this? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, a move like this is honestly one of those things. I, I guess, like, uh, be bold, be passionate, right? Like, I, I want to talk to new studios who like make the effort to make themselves known and and to shout from the hilltop and 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 grab my attention, right? Like. Um, the studios who, so for example, in a kind of more grassroots um, event, like um, I say grassroots, it represents an entire country, but a more local event like First Playable, for example, the developers who make the effort to go there, get their game out there, put it in front of people, they're ahead of the queue. They are. Versus somebody who just sends an email, right? Like, I, I, I this somebody clipped this um, from uh, I forget who it was. Uh, I'm really sorry. Uh, I do know them as well because they told me uh, in person. I'm really sorry to this individual, um, but the, somebody clipped me um, uh, saying that my inbox is a demon that I spend every day trying to slay. And, and that's still the case, and that's the case. That's for the case everyone. for a lot of us, yeah. That's that's the case for everyone. Um, and if if that's your only avenue for approaching publishers with your new idea, your new project, you're not going anywhere. I'm really sorry, but you're not. Um, be proactive. Like, go to these events. Go to these networking events. Like, I know you have a budget. Uh, like, you probably can't. Like. In the early stages, you probably can't afford to go to Gamescom. You probably can't go go to um, GDC. But there are more local events that we go to, and the people who run those events have an invested interest in paying for the travel and paying for the the accommodation of the Game Scouts and Biz Dev people that go there. So there will be people that you want to talk to going to those more local events. Get yourself out there um put put it, it's about being proactive and and forcing yourself on uh on biz dev and game scouting people rather than waiting for them to come along i i would say if, if you've got a limited budget and i tell people and first i, I, I was with you there at first playable and i've told yeah. several people since then that was in terms of the quality of pitches that i saw that was one of the best shows i went to all year you have a distinct advantage at these smaller regional shows versus GDC or Gamescom 
because we'll say if, if it's Joshua and I that are there or, you know, Eves or, or any of the, the normal crew of us that tend to run around to a lot of these things, you're not only going to have a 30 minute meeting with us if, if we think that, but in the evening, you're not dealing with people you. spreading out all across San Francisco or all across Cologne. Malmo Nordic is like a great example. Literally everybody at that conference ends up at one bar, you know, yeah. in the evening. And so you get a chance away from that 30 minute meeting to chat with people and to build a, a better relationship. You know, I always tell teams, if you've got a limited travel budget, don't go to GDC or, or Gamescom because you're yeah. fighting for so much mind space there. Go well, to a Nordic, go to a develop, go to a reboot, go to a, a first playable. The, 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 the question that kind of started up the show about Gamescom, right? Like, I just told you all that I spent this Gamescom focusing on known contacts mm -hmm. and my schedule was full, right? Yeah. I never that got is... to see the indie area. Yeah. I didn't even get so, a chance to walk around there. Like, if if you think, like, and, and like, obviously not every Game Scout took the extreme step, uh, extreme step that I took of like saying no, no to meet to match, but that's probably going to be the case for most people. They're going to go with a meet, you know, if they see a meeting come up, they're going to go with the people they know, the people they trust at those bigger events. Um, you, you're absolutely right, Jay. Those smaller events are actually, you're going to get more bang for your buck in terms of attention, in terms of relationship building. Um, and, yeah. and a lot of us enjoy them better than the bigger ones too, because they are, much, they are much more relaxed. Yeah, it's we not get like, to have we get to have a casual chat. I I landed in Cologne Monday morning. I did not stop moving until I stepped onto the train Saturday afternoon. I mean, and you're just you're just exhausted. But anyway, all right, we have kept you. We have run almost two hours. Dan's going to get the wonderful job of splitting this one into two episodes. I'm guessing. Yes, for sure. That man, this has been ups. There's been ups and downs, and there's stuff that people have wanted to hear, and then there's stuff that people haven't wanted to hear. But it's been tons of information. <laughs> Everything from your game is awesome to everybody's got an idea. Yes. Yeah. Right. A lot of people are like, "Oh, I have this awesome idea." Well, don't you think the programmers making the game they have an idea too? That's why they're making the game. So it's all about execution, right? Yeah. All about execution. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joshua, for hanging out with us. And guess what, everybody? It is 24 days until Indie Game Business Sessions. Woo! September 26th and 27th. So that's coming up, right, Jay? Yes. Now yeah. that I can actually start thinking about it um, post-Gamescom. Yes. Yes. And so check it out, IndieGame.Business. So also, we hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us today. Also, You can sign up for our newsletter at IndieGame.Business, and it's got all kinds of tips and latest updates that'll give you a leg up on your game, and you also get a list of a bunch of publishers. There's, what, over 700 now? Is no, it actually, is? it failed the last couple of years. It's like somewhere, it's close to 600, I think, this year. Well, you know what? That's still closer to 1,000 than zero, right? Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> also, join our, our Discord, discord.gg slash IndieGameBusiness, and make sure and check out our sweet, sweet indie game business merch at streamlabs.com slash indie game business slash merch. We also have a link tree, right? The link tree. Yeah, it's, link it's tree right there. Slash indie game business. Yep. Yeah, that's scrolling across the screen. And everyone have an amazing weekend. Thanks, everybody. Joshua, 
freaking pleasure as always. And, and I will see you at, at the next event. But yeah, enjoy your evening. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye, everybody. Cool. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.